So for scripture, I've selected uh, four different passages. Uh, so Luke 22. Uh, first passage, um, 8 through 10. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Second passage, uh, verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Third passage, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And finally, verse 38. And, he, and, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. You may be seated. Hello, my name is Patrick Stahl. Um, you may have realized I'm not Henry, and you can tell he does not have a blue shirt like this. So that's how, that's how you can tell us apart. Uh, so Henry had planned on uh, being gone, and he asked me to fill in, uh, but it turned out uh, his plans changed, and he was, he was able to be here. So you can uh, talk to him afterwards if you have any complaints. So you're probably wondering, what are my credentials uh, that I should be up here? And my credentials are, I am the last person that Henry asked to fill in. I may not have, but I was definitely the last. So we'll see how it goes. So Henry always does a good job of giving uh, good practical applications in his sermon. So I'll, I'll try to do the same. Now this first one's free. It's not even in the sermon. Knowledge increases faith. So if you're inclined to amen, I'll, I'll say it again. This might be your best chance. Knowledge increases faith. Yeah. All right, so everybody turn around, take a look at the video screen and back. Get up if you can't see it. You'll see there's both a time and a shot clock. So I have some boys that are worried that the sermon might go into overtime and they'll miss some football. So there's no chance, so whatever happens today, there's no chance that I'm going to go along or lose track of the time. Okay, we have a score for the morning game, this yellow out. Okay, so my plan for this uh, sermon is to go through the, the various sections in uh, chapter 22, uh, make some observations, and then at the end, try to come up with some conclusions and action items based on those observations. So let's begin. I may have to pound on the pulpit here, so I need to have some. It's a little low. Okay. So uh, the first slide, um, I've chosen to use the English Standard Version, and then the, the section headings are, are mine, so they may not match what's in your Bible. So we're going to start in uh, verses 1 through 6. This is the plot against Jesus. The chapter starts with a conspiracy against Jesus. And my first question when I read this is, why are the chief priests afraid of the people? One reason could have been they were concerned that Jesus would, re, would uh, lead a rebellion against Rome and then that this would bring the wrath of both Rome and Herod down upon Jerusalem. And this would end up with violence, a lot of people being killed, a lot of people probably being crucified. 
And if you remember, just a few chapters ago, we had the triumphal entry. So the, it seems like the people might be primed for, for an insurrection. And Jesus might just be that spark. However, later on in Luke, it's clear that neither Pilate or Herod are uh, very concerned about Jesus. They're not worried that uh, he's going to do anything. So another explanation is hinted at when Jesus cleared the temple of, of the money changers. And this happened to be, this was very popular with the crowds. Um, and the money changers just didn't show up one day. They just didn't show up and start setting up their, their business. They were there with the permission of the chief priests and those associated with them. So a case can be made that the chief priests were part of this racket. And everyone was getting their beak wet, as we used to say in South Dakota. So Jesus was just simply bad for business. He was going to ruin their, uh, their little business racket. In verse 3, um, Satan enters Judas. Uh, in the earlier chapters, we have uh, lots of description of, de of demonic possessions. But there was always obvious when someone was uh, possessed by a demon. Those persons were not in their right mind. Uh, not so with Judas. Not even those closest to him can tell that Satan has entered him. So my question is, how did Satan affect Judas? Um, it appears maybe from this passage that Satan gave Judas the idea to approach the chief priest with his, uh, his plan. Um, maybe Satan kept Judas from some self-reflection. Judas doesn't seem to uh, second-guess himself until it's too late. So moving on, we'll go to verses 7 through 13. And this is the preparation. So here's another uh, easy application. Whenever God asks you to do something difficult, always ask a follow-up question. In verse 8, Jesus sends Peter and John into the city to prepare the Passover meal. And it's a good thing they just didn't go tearing off right away. A follow-up question made things a lot easier. All they had to do was just find this one guy and all the work was done. This, this is a lot like the previous, we had a previous chapter when uh, Jesus found the colt, or Jesus sent his disciples to find the colt that he rode into Jerusalem. So maybe Jesus prearranged this, um, maybe he knew this person, but he doesn't, he doesn't tell the disciples to go find Bob, um, so he, do, he doesn't use his name. So I think this is Jesus using his foreknowledge, and then that this would mean that the guy with the jar of water was prompted by the Holy Spirit and had a room ready. One thing I bet is that he never carries a, a jar of water again. You carry one jar of water and 13 dudes show up your house. By the way, this is where J.R. Tolkien was inspired uh, to use this scene at the beginning of The Hobbit. So that's where he got the idea. Okay, we'll go to the next section, um, 14 through 20. And this is the first communion. In verse 15, Jesus gets serious. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now Jesus does something so profound that we still celebrate it today. He connects himself with the upcoming crucifixion with the Passover lamb back in Exodus. So for about 1,500 years, Jesus has been anticipating the revelation of the true significance of the sacrament that God gave Moses. We look back and we see this connection. But this whole time, God was looking ahead to this moment when he gave those instructions to Moses. 
Now, I'm, I'm thinking the disciples continued to, to celebrate Passover. They uh, continued with their Jewish traditions. But I'm sure the Passover was never the same for, the, for them again. So after this, whenever they would celebrate Passover, I'm sure they would take this time to reflect back on Jesus. Now we go to a section uh, 21 through 26. And I call this the fight. Things are going to take an unexpected turn when Jesus predicts that one of the 12 will betray him. Now notice, no one has suspected Judas. And it may seem strange that a discussion about who would betray Jesus would turn so quickly into an argument about who was the greatest. But this makes perfect sense if you have teenagers in your house. So the logic is this. If the person who betrays Jesus is the worst disciple, then that means there must be someone who is the greatest. And there can only be one greatest. So we've gone from this profound transcendent moment of the explanation of the uh, Passover to kind of a three stooges routine with the disciples wrestling on the ground. At least that's how I'm reading this. Now in verses 31 through 34, we get this warning. So Jesus breaks up the fight, um, and then he gives this chilling warning to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Or to, to paraphrase that, that expression, that he might pick you apart. And then... What follows is a verse that has really affected me this week. And Jesus says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Meaning, after you have betrayed me, and you have wept bitterly, and you're done feeling sorry for yourself, come back to me and get back to work. Start by helping your brothers. Then we move on to uh, 35 through 38. And we have a, a, a teaching, a scripture with some teaching. So Jesus takes this time to deliver uh, one last piece of teaching. And I think this will be his last teaching until after the resurrection. So there's probably an entire sermon within this passage, and I, I can't do it justice. But previously, the disciples had gone out on these sort of short-term mission trips, and everything had gone smoothly. They didn't need to pack or plan or even bring money. But going forward, things are going to be different. And I'm understanding this to mean that they're going to have to consider everything from weather and road conditions, money for buying food, highway robbers, and eventually persecution. Nothing will be easy anymore. And I think this, this teaching continues today and it still applies to the church. Regardless of what Jesus had meant, um, the disciples completely missed the point. And Jesus ends this conversation with, it is enough. Um, a better translation might be, enough of this, spoken with a bit of sarcasm. 
Next up is what I'm calling the pause before the storm, verses 39 through 46. So it's not so much a calm before the storm, but a pause before the storm. Jesus has been in control of this situation. He has, he has stayed out of Jerusalem until this time, and he has timed his entrance uh, to force uh, a confrontation or to force the religious leaders, Pilate and Herod, to make a choice. And this moment has been planned before the foundations of the world. This is part of the salvation plan. But once Jesus leaves the Mount of Olives, there's going to be no stopping the upcoming storm. He alone understands what is coming, and he stops to pray. Notice the two warnings uh, that he gives. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. In 45, or 47 through 55, we have the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. In my opinion, um, Judas' betrayal wasn't needed from a practical standpoint. So the argument is that the chief priests and some of the temple guards didn't know Jesus, didn't know what he looked like very well, and they couldn't identify him in the dark, nor did they know where he was staying. Um, so they wanted to wait when he wasn't in a public place uh, so there wouldn't be a crowd, and they were worried that he might... Um, sneak off to a, a village outside of Jerusalem. Um, but I think a clever guard could have followed him or have someone followed and identified him. And Jerusalem isn't that big. So the point is, I, in my opinion, they really didn't need Judas. So Judas give, ends up, he gave up everything for nothing. And after the arrest and uh, betrayal of Jesus, we have what I think is when uh, Satan sifts Peter like wheat. So we're in 54 through 62. I believe Peter when he says he would have died for Jesus. I think he would have if things had gone to Peter's uh, expectations. But this is not what he expected. And I've, I've always wondered what I would have done in this situation. Would I have stayed or would I have fled once Jesus was arrested? Unfortunately, I know. Now don't, don't get mad or offended or, or read too much into what I'm going to say. But when I was on my couch uh, watching Easter service during the COVID lockdowns, I knew I'd have been a coward. Now, I realized we were all doing what we thought was best out of an abundance of caution. But what should have Peter done? The smart thing would have been to flee the city. That would have been an out of abundance of caution. If Pilate had been in charge, I'm sure he would have rounded up all the disciples and had them arrested. Herod certainly would have. Herod murdered members of his own family because they thought they were a threat. Yeah, sure, Peter shouldn't have denied Jesus. But maybe he should get some credit for not fleeing the city and for at least sticking around. That would have been the smart thing. This one last comment about COVID. I remember the praise team was up here on stage every Sunday. 
when I was home on my couch. And then I'll finish the chapter summary with verses 63 through 65. This is where the soldiers mock Jesus. Now Luke doesn't say this, but I'm sure there were angels with drawn swords above the heads of, of those soldiers. God will allow them to kill Jesus, but it's going to be according to his plan at his time on the cross. Those stupid fools had one toe over the edge of the abyss and didn't even know how close they were to destruction. So what does it all mean? What are some conclusions we can draw from these observations? Well, one, when following Jesus, the moments of these transcendent enlightenment are easy to miss. The disciples were highly trained. They had been with Jesus for three years. They had stayed when his other followers had left. Yet they still missed moments. They didn't understand all of his teachings. And even when you grasp Jesus' teaching and the veil parts and you have this crystal clear of view of reality, it's still hard to stay in that moment. The disciples broke out into argument after their first communion, after Jesus explained the meaning of the Passover. And sometimes this crystal view is disturbing. I mean, there's some parallels back to Job with Satan demanding to have the disciples. I wish Jesus would have promised that everything would be easy, but he didn't make that promise. Even when his sweat became like drops of blood, he thought it was important to warn his followers about temptation. And Peter being sifted like wheat turned out to be pretty mundane. There was no great satanic attack. There was no swirling clouds of darkness. Luke doesn't even give us a description of the oppressive forces of evil bearing down on Peter. It was just a servant girl calling him out. Jesus isn't always what you expect. Judas was a follower of Jesus. He could have stayed, or he, I'm sorry, he could have left long ago, but he decided to stay. Yet something disappointed him enough that he betrayed Jesus. Luke gives us the story of the woman weeping and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. How could she see who Jesus was and not the temple guards? Why were their eyes blind to him. So I invite the praise team can come back up. So what are some action items for this week? Maybe we need to try harder and be more sensitive to encounters with Jesus. That's good advice, I'm sure. But I kept coming back to, it is enough. Not how that phrase was used in verse 38 but how it relates to the cross, it is enough. Will we miss opportunities? Yes, but the cross is enough. Will we, will we be mistaken in our theology? Yes, but the cross is enough. Will we, will we be cowards or screw up and weep bitterly? 
Yes. But when you turn back, strengthen your brothers because Jesus is enough. So the action item for this week is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved because he is enough.